0: If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we are eventually going to be in Revelation 17 this morning. Revelation 17, although we're going to take a little bit of time uh, to get there and review just a little bit of what we're doing here in the book of Revelation in the first place. Uh, we have been instructed by this book for quite some time now under the title you see here, uh, The Vindication of Of the Lord and his people. Vindication is a really wonderful word. Uh, It's a word that means to clear someone from suspicion or blame. It means to prove that someone was in the right all along. Even if everyone else thought he or she was wrong, in the end it comes out that they were right. If you start thinking about it, you realize a lot of great story or movie plots are based on vindication. The hero is striving to do what he knows is right, sometimes against impossible odds. Well, everyone tells him to give up, but in the end, the hero defeats the villain and gets the girl, proving that goodness and justice always triumph. That's how a lot of stories go. They've sort of broken down a little bit in our postmodern age, but the classics are always along that same storyline. Yesterday, in fact, I reread the story of Susanna which appears in the Apocrypha. It's a great little story of vindication. It's only 63 verses. I'm always surprised when I find out nobody's ever read that before. But a couple of months ago, actually, I was at uh, the Chicago Institute of Art while we were uh, visiting our, our granddaughter. And uh, we actually took her around too. She really appreciated the art, about four months old. She was already like, you know, being... Uh, critical a little bit of it, and uh, so we, it was good to see that, that young mind flourishing. But um, there, I, I found this series of, of four little paintings telling the story of Susanna. In, in the story, the, Susanna is, is, is the, this beautiful woman who is wrongfully accused by two wicked judges of Israel, and these two judges, or elders, are revered by the people But in reality, they are evil men and they are harboring lustful thoughts in their hearts towards Susanna. So together, they proposition her under the threat that if she does not go along with them, they will make up a story about her being unfaithful and they will have her put to death. But Susanna loves the Lord and she obeys her God and she's faithful to the law and she will not go along with them. So she casts herself upon the mercy of God. Well, these wicked judges drag Susanna before the elders of the city and they accuse her of adultery, even though they were the ones who had that thought in their hearts. But because these judges are so revered by the people, Susanna is immediately condemned and she is led away to her death. But as they are leading her away, this young man shouts out, I want nothing to do with the shedding of this innocent blood. And everyone turns to see who this young man is. And it is none other than Daniel, who we read about in the canonical Old Testament. There's other stories about Daniel in Jewish literature. Maybe you haven't read them uh, that are not in the Bible. We don't know if they're true or not, uh, but they're there. And they're interesting stories. Daniel yells this out, and everybody turns to look at him. Daniel smells a rat. Something is not going right here. And he demands to know why they have condemned an innocent daughter of Israel without even examining the judge's story. So they all go back to the court, and long story short, Daniel easily exposes their contradictions in their story, and the wicked judges are condemned by the community And they are found out that they are lying about Susanna. And in the end, these false accusers end up being put to death in the same way Susanna was going to be put to death. And everyone affirms Susanna's purity and her goodness. That's vindication. She was thought to be in the wrong, but she was really in the right. The righteous who have held to the truth, who committed Their trust in the Lord, even to their peril, in the end, they're shown to be in the right. And those who wanted to destroy them are demolished. Vindication means that the righteous always win in the end because they belong to the righteous, sovereign God who promised them redemption. I think that our soul thrills at stories like this because they are microcosms. They're pictures in miniature of the great story that is unfolding in all of human history. And when the Lord wanted to encourage His persecuted, struggling people at the close of the first century, those believers who were waiting faithfully for the return of the Lord as He promised to conquer their enemies and to bring them to glory, The Lord Jesus gave John, his beloved apostle, this vision to write down for them to assure them that both the Lord and his people would be vindicated in the end. We can trace this vindication theme all throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, I, I really am skipping about half of the verses we could look to, but I wanted to look at a few here just to kind of get our minds back in the game here in Revelation. For an instance, in chapter 1, verse 7, John writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Do you still have John 19 ringing in your ears? What will that day be like when Jesus Christ appears in all his glory? I love that Easter hymn uh, that that says, uh, See the man of sorrows now. Oh, I know. Uh, Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight, return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. That's vindication. And we begin the vindication, seeing the vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation. But as we continue to read through Revelation, we realize that God's people, the Lord's people, are also vindicated, not because God has sort of zapped them with something special, but because they are placed in him. We will be vindicated because our Lord Jesus Christ is vindicated. And when we read what Jesus says to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we see many wonderful promises of vindication. For instance, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you will be tested, and for ten days will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He tells the church at Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And we looked at this text a long time ago. It is just an astounding promise. We will reign with Christ. Revelation 20 says that. So we'll we'll hearken back to this verse when we get there. We will reign with Christ. He says, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He's not talking about Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. There are verses in the scripture about God doing that. He's saying we will reign alongside of him with this rule as when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star which I don't really know what that means, but it sounds really good, you know, to get the morning star. And uh, that is another example of vindication. We come to Revelation chapter 6, and John says, in the middle of these uh, uh, sealed judgments, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They were slain, they were killed, now they're in glory, but they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. When is our vindication coming? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There are more that will be martyred that will join you before the vindication comes. And we remember from reading through Revelation, we may want the vindication right now, but when God brings our vindication, He also brings the judgment upon the world, the deserving world. And as long as God holds back His wrath, He's showing mercy to them and giving them a chance to repent. So we may suffer for a time, but some of that suffering may be so that others can have mercy and be in glory with us. And that is what we do as believers. The idea of the prayers of God's people yearning for vindication, for the judgment of their enemies, and for the rest for the righteous follows throughout the book of Revelation. So we come to chapter 8. Before the mighty trumpet judgments, John says another angel was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Here are the prayers of the saints again in heaven on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and judgment follows. There's peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In other words, the judgment coming on the world is in part a response to the prayers of vindication, prayers for vindication by God's people. In chapter 11, when the 24 elders praise the Lord God Almighty in anticipation of His final judgment and earthly reign, they proclaim, the nations raged, they raged against God. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants. That's vindication. The dead are judged, the servants are rewarded the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And that wrath is poured out deftly and unmistakably in chapter 16 as the seven angels completely empty their full bowls of divine wrath upon the earth. And at the end of chapter 16, which is where we ended up a couple of months ago when we paused our study of Revelation, we read these words. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! That was the last judgment, And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Now, if you're following along your Bibles, jump from Revelation 16 verse 21 all the way to chapter 19 verse 11. 1621 to 1911, where it says, Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse on the earth and to reign. This is the ultimate moment of vindication for God and his people once and for all, visibly for all to see. Those who oppose the Lord are destroyed and those who trust in the Lord are set free. And in fact, they're ready then to reign with Christ. This is the ultimate vindication. And John is asked to write this revelation by the Lord to give hope to people whom he loves, lest they despair. I realize that we do not often suffer the kind of fear for our lives or persecution that believers in other parts of the world today suffer, and especially believers in the first century suffered, suffered. Brother Eric mentioned this just a few moments ago. Sometimes we we think of the hard things we go to and then we look at other people's suffering in the earth for Christ and we're like, "We we don't even want to mention ours anymore. But if we're ever tempted to doubt the Lord's return for us, or we grow weary of living in a world cursed by sin where immorality is out of control, where we could get shot just for visiting a grocery store, Or we're accused of being immoral or unloving or bigoted simply because we hold to some of the most basic, fundamental ideas in God's creation, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And that unborn children are created in God's image and you don't kill your children. Or when we are angry or confused because it seems that everyone is lying and the evil is always being exalted and the truth is always being suppressed. you ever feel that way? That, that is one of the scriptural ideas that uh, the prophets talk about this often, that just drains the life out of the people of God. They feel so oppressed. Who's listening? Who cares? Once truth is gone, everything is gone. And if you ever feel that way, then this assurance of the Lord's return and His putting everything to rights gives us hope and confidence that we can continue to follow Him and serve Him no matter what. That's why the Lord, Jesus Christ Himself, has given His church this book of Revelation. But what about chapters 17, 18, and 19 through verse 10? If this lengthy section, which is before us, did not exist in our Bibles, we would have no idea that anything was missing. Do you realize that? We can go right from chapter 16 to, chapter, to verse 11 of chapter 19 and not miss a beat. Because the Lord is ready to return after that last judgment is poured out and the earth is rocking and reeling and staggering in judgment and the Lord breaks through heaven and returns. That is what happens chronologically. The hero defeats the villain and he gets the girl, the bride of Christ. And righteousness triumphs and the the unjust are put down. And yet we have this parentheses. I would, actually wouldn't call it a parentheses. It's really important for us to know what's in these chapters. But chronologically, we're going back to something else. We're looking at this long section under the title, The Fall of Babylon and the Exaltation of the Bride. And I want to begin by reading chapter 17. I, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent this week trying to figure out how to unpack what is in here okay? But I figure if I take four or five or six weeks trying to do it, one of these these weeks I'm going to get it figured out, okay? So we're going to start today, and this will seem sort of like an introduction, but I want to start putting these ideas on the table and ask you to be thinking about them and reading through these texts over the next few weeks, and let's see if we can uh, ask the Lord to really teach us what is going on here in these texts. So if you'll read along with me, John says in John 17, then, or, uh, Revelation 17, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, he just poured out his bowl of judgment. One of those seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Let's pause for just a second to make sure we're all hearing the same thing. One of the seven angels who has just finished pouring out the bowls of God's wrath in chapter 16, he wants to show John the judgment of someone he calls the great prostitute. That's what the chapter is about. That's what the focus is. He wants to give John a closer look at the specific aspect of God's judgment on the world. So by far... Most of this long passage is about one thing in particular, the judgment of this great prostitute. Now, who is that? Well, let's keep reading. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual Immorality, And now we find out who this woman is because John says in verse 5, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Do you see why I didn't want to begin preaching this text on Mother's Day last week? And also I want you to notice this woman is a city. She's representing a city. Now remember, at the beginning of this passage, we see this throughout the Revelation. Sometimes we think of Revelation before we read it as it's just full of all of these symbolisms and we can never really understand what it is. It's really not that difficult as we've seen if we take what's happening literally to understand Revelation. And every time the Lord is going to show John some special vision which the symbols of that vision mean something else. He always says that John is caught away in the spirit or or the Lord says, I'm going to show you a vision. And so often the angel tells John what the vision means. And that's going to be the same case here. But the woman represents a city at this point. And the woman is called Babylon. Now, verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And now and I want to warn you, She's not, the angel is not going to tell John so much about the woman at this point for the next several verses as he's going to tell, her, tell him about the beast that she's riding on. And this is where we really need to pay attention. This beast we've already met, he appears in chapter 11 all of a sudden, and he's described in detail in chapter 13. He is the Antichrist, as we've seen. That Satan has called forth to rule over the world during this time, but he is depicted in the vision as this hideous beast with seven horns and 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 with ten horns and seven heads, actually. So, verse eight says, "The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction." And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is... The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And that is from John's perspective. Five of these kings have already fallen in John's time. One is reigning on the throne during John's day. One is going to come. As for the beast that was and is not, verse 11, it is an eighth king, an eighth mountain, perhaps. And it belongs, but it belongs to the seven in other words, it's in the chain, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Hence, he says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. Verse 13, they are of, these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with him are called the chosen and faithful. This is a cut ahead to the end of chapter 19 that we just read about where the Lord Jesus Christ comes. They're gonna make war on uh, the, the Lord when he comes and he he's, he's, has on his, uh, th- on his robes, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says in that passage later on in chapter 19 that the beast and the false prophet are captured alive and thrown into the lake of fire. So they will be destroyed. Everything he's saying here is about to happen. And we'll read about that in chapter 19, verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, she's over the whole earth. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Did you catch that? The ten horns represent ten kings, and the beast to whom these kings gave to the, give their authority, they will hate this woman, this Babylon. Do you know why the city of Babylon falls? The fall of Babylon is lamented in chapter 18. We're not going to have time to even start reading through that today. But the lament of Babylon's fall is in chapter 18. Why does it fall? It falls not because God directly strikes it down. It falls because the beast and the 10 kings take down this city. Keep reading. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Why? Verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the works of God are fulfilled. It's one evil destroying another evil. And in case John or his readers didn't understand the significance of the woman, the the chapter ends with this verse, and the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, as I said a second ago, chapter 18 is taken up with the devastation of the city of Babylon. Chapter 19 is taken up with the Lord's people rejoicing in Babylon's destruction. And then we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it's really easy to get lost in a lot of details and the explanation of them all. And we're going to take time to describe them as we work through. My, my little tiny descriptions or explanations as we've gone through, our, that's not our explanation. Okay, We're going we're gonna to do a deep dive uh, into these. But we want to keep our focus on the significance of all these things for us. And I hope you've realized that as we've gone through Revelation. It's not about fighting over what every symbol means and and all these different things we can work out, although that is fascinating to talk about. But God gave us this text to encourage us. At the beginning of the chapter, the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. There is a reason John is shown this vision. There is a specific purpose in it. So the angel is interested in John's response. That's why in verse 6, John says, when I saw her, I greatly marveled. That's putting it mildly. In the original language, John literally says, I wondered with great wonder, mega wonder. He's dumbstruck with amazement, and I dare say the horror of what he's seeing. But he continues The angel said to me, why do you marvel? You see, the angel is concerned about John's response. I think the Lord is concerned with our response to what we're reading. And if I can give you one other example, it's at the very end of the passage in chapter 19. We haven't read this verse yet, uh, but the angel finishes showing John the vision that we are looking at right now. And John says, I fell down at his feet to worship him, the angel, to worship the angel. He was overwhelmed, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he tells him. That's the appropriate response. So I'll tell you how we're going to approach over the next several weeks this long, long section of scripture we can get all caught up in the details of the chapter and just be fascinated with the meaning of this or that imagery and the vision, and we can surmise how all of this is going down. And we'll, we'll, we'll definitely take a look at it. But there are several appropriate responses that I think are implied in these chapters which will allow the text to minister to us in the way the Lord intended. And I'll tell you what these responsibilities are. First of all, uh, be wise. Oh, there we go. Be wise. Uh, Verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom. Be wise. Secondly, be assured. The city along with its wicked system will be brought down and the righteousness will be exalted. In fact, so certain is this that John has already recorded a lament in chapter 18 which talks about the destruction of, that is in the future as if it's already happened in the past tense. It's, a, it's a, an astounding, dramatic chapter about the fall of evil. Thirdly, be warned. When we investigate who this woman actually represents, we recognize things about our own culture going on right now that we need to avoid. I didn't read this verse in chapter 18, obviously, but it says, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Yes, we need to reach the world. We know this. But there is also a sense in which we must come out of the world. Jesus held these two in tension in John 15 through 17. It's the sense in which we will not become infected by the world because we can easily get sucked in. Two reasons to avoid getting sucked into the political and religious system Babylon represents. One, so that we do not take part in the sins of the culture. And second, so we do not experience the judgment of the culture. And I want to focus on that over the next couple of weeks when we get to that command or that uh, way we respond to the text. Fourthly, be joyful. Be joyful. This text, 17 through uh, 19, ought to bring us joy. In fact, multiple times in this passage, we're called either explicitly or implicitly to rejoice in what John sees that he's describing to us. Again, and I I love this verse, chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. In other words, rejoice over the fall of Babylon. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. listen, Listen to this. For God has given judgment for you against her. You see that? The judgment of God comes from a holy God who is bound to judge sin. We know that. Judgment is the means of vindicating the holiness of God. But notice that the call to rejoice says we are also to rejoice because the judgment is on our behalf. He's vindicating us. He says that it is for us against Babylon. That's vindication. And we are to rejoice. And then the final appropriate response to God's judgment upon Babylon, the angel told this to John, and it is simply, worship God. And at the end of the day, this text, these chapters ought to lead us to worship, and over the next several Lord's days, as we probe these chapters and attempt to mine out their truth, I would like us to consider these five appropriate responses. And we don't have a lot of time left here. We're, we're going to go to the Lord's table. I want to really focus on that here in the remainder of our time today. But I want to talk just for just a second as I wrap up about this first response to be wise. This calls for a mind of wisdom. Literally, the noose, the mind. Needs to have Sophia, is what the text says. The noose having Sophia, wisdom. It's a call not to feel, not to widely speculate, but to think carefully with great discernment. First, we need to apply this discernment to the vision that John is revealing to us. So often in the history of interpretation, the vision has been used to make some amazing claims. Some of you know of these claims, For example, years ago, I was told that Babylon, the mother of harlots, this woman riding the beast was actually the Roman Catholic church because it says in verse six that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And if you look back over church history, the Catholic church has killed a lot of Protestant believers. The problem is there were also a lot of Catholic people killed by Protestants. When it comes to the sin of killing in the name of the church, I'm afraid there's enough guilt to go around in church history. Another part of the vision with an interpretive history are the ten horns of the beast. In verse 12 of chapter 17, the angels tell John that the ten horns of the beast are ten kings who will reign for a brief time until the beast, or with, with the beast or this, this antichrist. So when Europe came up with the idea of joining countries... In order to focus on fostering trade alliances, preachers and prophecy conference speakers had a field day. The European Union started with six countries in 1957, but we the, the prophecy guru says, watch out, they're going to grow to 10. And when it hits 10, those are going to be the 10 horns of the beast. Three more countries were added in 1973, and in 1981, Greece joined, making it an even ten nations. And oh, the elation among prophecy teachers, because it appeared to prove this theory. I remember, I remember literally, because in the 80s, there was a big prophecy conference search. I know we still have that today, but almost every church you went into would have this big chart on, on the front of the church, and when Christ was coming, and what was going to happen after that, and, and so forth. And I remember in junior high school thinking that it was gospel truth that this group of countries in Europe that I didn't really understand what was going on with them, but they were the 10 horns of the beast. The problem with this view is that five years later, after 1981, Spain and Portugal joined, making it 12. And then in 1995, three more joined, bringing the current number to 15. So the European Union as it stands is not the same as the 10 horns of Revelation 17. I hate to break it to some of you, but that's really probably not going to happen. However, I am not trying to be unduly critical of those interpretations that came and went because the 10 kings are going to have to be leaders of some countries and no doubt at least some of them are going to be in Europe and Babylon the woman on the beast represents a political and a religious authority and ideology in the world and that has to come from somewhere Do you know who Babylon is when John writes the book of Revelation? Babylon is Rome. In fact, as most of you remember at the end of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter, writing from Rome, takes the stylus in his own hand and he writes his own personal note at the end of a letter. That was typical uh, when you did a letter. You see it in Paul often. He writes with his own hand, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. He's not talking about Babylon. He's not in Babylon. He's in Rome. If the Antichrist would have arisen in John's day and all the events we read in Revelation would have unfolded back then and none of our history that we know for a couple thousand years had ever happened, Rome would no doubt have been the city that is destroyed in this prophecy because Rome was the powerful and unchallenged influence that exerted its pressure on the world. And the rulers of Rome were responsible for the shedding of much blood of Christians. But the message of revelation that brings hope and courage that God will one day overthrow such a force and return to rule in righteousness is no less real in our day. Though Rome is no longer a world. We don't know what it will be. But Satan has always got something ready to use. For we are called to be discerning about our own time. Just as John was called to be encouraging to these churches that he ministered to. So when we return to this text next Lord's Day, I'm going to walk through verse by verse, and we'll start right away, so that we can discern wisely together, who is this woman exactly? Who are these horns? What are these mountains? What are these heads on the beast? And so forth. So that we can be aware of what the Lord is doing in our world to move us closer and closer to that great day of vindication. And the more we see, the more excited we get, and the more encouraged we are. And that's what the Lord wants us to be as he continues to communicate to us through his divine word. Father, thank you so much.